Dr. R.J. Rushduni, RR161BV133, Remarkable People We Have Known, From the Easy Chair, Excellent Colloquies on Various Subjects. This is R.J. Rushduni, Easy Chair Number 237, March the 5th, 1991. This evening, Otto Scott and I are going to discuss something a bit different from any other discussion we've had, and the suggestion for this comes from one of you. We've lived a good many years, and so we've had a, an opportunity to meet in the course of those years some very interesting and truly remarkable people. So... We're going to talk tonight about remarkable people we have known. I'm going to uh, skip over my family and my close associates. I feel I've had a remarkable heritage, and I feel that I'm privileged to work with the kind of men I do. So I'm going to look outside that immediate circle. And in the course of this uh, tape, I shall discuss a number of people, but first of all, I'd like to discuss someone whom I've never forgotten and whose name I cannot remember. I was about 20 when I met him. He came to see my father and his was a rather unusual quest. He was Armenian, but he had been reared in France. He had just barely been in his teens, or about in his teens, when the war broke out. His parents were massacred. I believe it was French Franciscans who rescued him when the rest of the family was killed. He grew up then in France and being a very brilliant student early was in the university, then medical school, and then went to Africa as a doctor in French Equatorial Africa. He was there some years, and in the course of that time, he saw both English and French colonies. And in that particular year, he had a year's leave, a sabbatical. And he had traveled around Europe to Armenian communities and then to the United States to try to locate in some of the Armenian communities men who had been his father's college classmates. Men who had been his father's friends or family friends. So he had, from memory, a limited number of names that he wanted to uh, locate 
persons he wanted to locate and talk to them about his father. He arrived one day and my father was out for a time and I had an hour or so before going to my college class and we chatted. He was in some respects the most pessimistic person I have ever met. He saw nothing good ahead for Europe than he'd been in a good deal of Europe. I asked him if it was Hitler or Stalin that he saw as the greater threat, and he said if there were no Hitler nor Stalin, it would be no different. Europe's day in the West is about over. We are at the end of an era in civilization, and he saw very little hope ahead. His account of things in Africa was startling. He quoted a proverb which I've encountered since, a native proverb about dealing with the English and French in the various colonies. They said it took two hands to milk the French, but only one to milk the English. And this young man, he had two names, an Armenian name and the adopted French name that had been given to him by the Franciscans. And I remember neither name. He said most people seem to think of the natives as being exploited by colonialism. And he said there may be some truth to it, but he said it's also true the other way around to an even greater degree. The French and the English are being exploited by the natives. And the natives feel they are getting the better part of the bargain. But basically, because he saw the decline of the West, and the decline in the Christian churches, Catholic and Protestant. And nothing but barbarism in the world outside. He felt that civilization was going heedlessly towards its doom. I found that I could not disagree with his analysis, although I felt a great deal of hope where he felt none. But his analysis was so penetrating, I've never forgotten him. He probably, if living now, is 85 to 90 years of age. A very remarkable man. A man of insight and vision. 
he was also a man of faith. And I expect to see him someday in heaven and will then know his name. Well, Otto, would you like to discuss someone now? Yes, I I think Paul Blasius of Aston Doyle, the founder of Aston Doyle, one of the most remarkable men I've ever met. I had never heard of him. I was uh, running a trade magazine that covered the rubber industry. The rubber industry, the one of the components of that industry is the carbon black industry, which is used to make rubber firm. Carbon black, the mixture of carbon black with rubber makes automobile tires possible, things of that sort. Nobody knows why. And the various oil companies had bought up the carbon black companies and I began to write a series of articles about the carbon black companies and as I recall there was only one that was unpurchased and that was Cabot Cabot Carbon so I went down to Houston, Texas to interview the president of United Carbon which had been been acquired by Ashland Oil and at the end of this very pleasant interview with him, he said, of course, you have to go and see Mr. Blazier. And I said, well, Mr. Blazier is the, uh, uh, he's your boss. He said, well, he's my boss. I said, yes, but he's an absentee landlord. You're sitting here running the company. Why should I bother to go see him? Well, he said, it, would, uh, it wouldn't look good if you interviewed me and wrote me up and didn't talk to my boss. It might get me into trouble. I said, well, I don't want to do that. So I went up to Kentucky and called upon them there. I was tired. I'd been on the road for a couple of weeks, and I'd had a lot of interviews, and I was not interested, really. And they made a big to-do about it, a big fuss, as to whether Mr. Blazier was available or not or would be. I found out later he was in very bad health. He was 76. Finally, they came in very excited and said, Mr. Blazier is going to be available for lunch. And I said, oh, you know, great, wonderful. So we went into a, uh, an executive dining room, which was a very small room. And a tall, elderly, white-haired man came in, followed by an entire crew, a parade of men in dark suits who arranged themselves around the table. He sat at the head, I sat next to him. And we began to chat. The blackout had just occurred in New York City, and we talked about that briefly. And then I began to ask him questions about the acquisition of United Carbon. And they were rather embarrassing and pertinent questions. I mean, first he described the acquisition and said that it was a very well-managed company and all that. And he had made the president of that company a director of Ashland and made him a vice president and all kinds of things. I said, well, in that case, why did he leave? And there was a little gasp around the table. As apparently, nobody talked to the CEO in that frame, that tone. He was very calm. He, he answered it very well. He said, we... Well, of course, we called him in to ask him various questions about how he managed the firm. Uh, 
he said in the beginning he was very knowledgeable but as these sessions increased he said uh, and became more searching we came into more and more areas that he couldn't answer and after one particularly gruesome session of that sort he said on his way back to texas he dropped a postcard in the mailbox and it said simply i quit <laughs> well i said that's interesting what did you do well he said we had given him stock options and also his colleagues at the company we didn't want him to leave empty-handed because he had done a good job and he said we therefore lent them the money to pick up their stock options and realize a fair amount of money when they left and he said we uh, had already one man down there one young man who by the way is now the head of the company head of Ashland he said we sent another man down for him to straighten matters out and I said how did it work he said well they were making about a million dollars a year when we bought them and he said now this is about two years ago they're making a million dollars a month so he said things have gone very well and then the conversation went on into other areas into areas of uh, management and i found as the conversation continued that he was very much against the harvard school of business of management he felt that men had to be had to have their destinies involved with the destinies of the enterprise because he said they will otherwise turn out like the heads of standard oil when i was a young man he said they were all elderly and they were all very rich and none of them really cared whether the company made money anymore or not because they had theirs he said it was falling apart little companies like mine or friends of mine he said were taking big pieces away from standard oil of new jersey and the men at the top didn't even notice it he said there was no need for the supreme court to step in to save anybody from that company because it was dying and he said in the normal course of events it would have died and he said we would have dismembered it and shared it amongst ourselves and he said other and younger men come up we really do not need the government to protect us from competition because competition is always with us and he went on into various other areas very clearly i interjected a question from time to time and he would pause and answer the question and then pick up the thread of the narrative all in all we chatted for about three hours and one of the men who was forced to sit there and listen to this said to me later we thought the old man had finally gone around the bend he said he was spending all this time with an editor from some little publication none of us had ever heard of but paul or mr blazer would do that he talked to everybody and he found everyone he came in contact with of some interest and he had at one time I, I understood later had some inclinations toward writing himself but he actually had begun as a salesman he had taken a group of 24 people including his office staff his secretary so forth one salesman 20 odd people in a little refinery and he had built it into an impressive operation that employed almost 30,000 people on the edge of Appalachia he did this practically alone but as he added men he trained them and expanded the company it was the biggest anti-poverty program on the edge of Appalachia 
that that area has ever seen. And instead of getting money from the government, it paid enormous amounts of money to the government. And it was interesting to, <coughs> later on, later on we came back together and he asked me to write the history of the company. And I interviewed, uh, I only had a few weeks with him, he died, and I had to interview the men who worked with him and around him. And it was very interesting. They were, almost to a man, had found it almost impossible to live under the strain of that sort of genius. They couldn't forgive him for his superiority. Mm. He had made them rich, but they found it so painful that they couldn't forgive him for it. The people who were not close to him, but who were only, let's say, the middle and lower echelons of the company, who only saw him as the man who had created this great company, felt much warmer toward him than his closest associates because they weren't under the searchlight, so to speak. They were, didn't have to sub be subjected to an analysis of what they were doing and why they didn't do it better and so forth and so on. But in the short, relatively short time that we had together, he explained himself to me without really uh, doing it in a direct way. The great curse of genius, I believe, is lonesome, lonesomeness. Nobody to talk to, no peers, no equals, nobody with whom it's safe to relax. Because don't forget, we live in a jealous world. Mm -hmm. And I found that Mr. Blazier, everywhere he went, aroused jealousies which men were ashamed to admit, but which nevertheless were present. He avoided the penalty of genius by deciding to listen to other men. He listened to every man that he came across that had any sort of ability or knowledge at all. And he would continue what amounted to a running conversation with that individual until he had found out what he knew. It was like someone else reading a book. And then whenever they came together again, the conversation would resume on the previous level, but M Mr. Blazer's real attention would have moved on to some other individual. He was not a great reader. He didn't have time to read. And at one point, we got into, when I went into the office, at one point they said, well, Mr. Blazer changed the refinery run last night. And if you're not too busy, maybe you could ask him why he did that. Well, I said, I understand you changed the refinery run last night. He said, yes, I did. Yes. He said, I had to get up. He said, as you know, my health is bad. I had to get up in the middle of the night. I didn't want to waste my time, he said, in the bathroom. I had a phone. So I called the refinery. And he said, unfortunately, the foreman was not available, but there was a worker there at the control station, and he couldn't tell me what was happening, so I asked him where he was standing, and he told me, and I asked him what gauges he was near, and he described that. So he said, well, on the left-hand gauge, change the needle from, say, 60 to 80, and in that fashion he had the workman change the refinery run he could visualize it from where he was sitting in his back room. Mm -hmm. And 
he had taught himself this. He said, chemistry, I discovered, he said, is mainly a matter of vocabulary. The chemical words are put together some way, how the Germans put words together. And once you begin to understand that sort of language, the chemical term itself describes the situation. And of course, he did this little by little in the course of building the refinery. He died. He died. The day he died, he was still running the company. He got up in the morning and weighed himself, and his weight had increased quite a bit. So his wife told me later he realized that his body was retaining fluids, and he regarded himself almost as a man regards a piece of machinery. He took he watched his pulse and he watched this he took lots of medicines I said don't you ever say the hell with it he said I have no emotional problems <laughs> but on this particular morning he discovered that his body was retaining fluid so that called for some special attentions and in his bathrobe pajamas and slippers the doctor said well you'd better come in if that's the case he went in and of course they put him to bed and he died in the course of that particular evening, rather peacefully. One of the men that I met before Mr. Blazer died, I met a, an oil man who said, I understand you went to Ashton and you interviewed or you spoke with Mr. Blazer. I said, yes. He said, how long did you talk to with him? I said, well, for probably about 10 days or so, for most of the day. He said, 10 days, the most of the day, with Paul Blazer? I said, yes. He said, what was it like? I said, it was like sitting beneath a great light that illuminated the landscape. It made me feel very smart. I could see everything that he was talking about. And it wasn't until I left that everything got cloudy again that I realized that I had been listening to an illuminating mind very clear very clear and the man looked at me with envy when he died the Wall Street Journal didn't mention it there was a big uh, true for all of course in Kentucky in, in the town where the, where the company was headquartered but beyond the confines of his industry nothing and I can't help when I contrast that sort of send-off, you might say, with all that has been said about John Lennon. Yes. All that has been said and written about unworthy individuals. Yes. And I think that is probably one of the most difficult aspects of modern life is to see the worthy ignored and the unworthy elevated. Yes. That I'll never forget Paul, never forget Mr. Blazer. He changed my life as he changed the lives of almost everyone that ever came in touch with him, and for the better. Well, I know when I was at the university, the handful of good, truly good professors there were resented bitterly by the others because they looked so poorly by comparison. Hmm. These great minds, just a bare handful of them, hmm. were out of place at the university. 
Well, I'd like to discuss a very, very remarkable woman next. Her name was Donaldina Cameron. I knew her in her old age, a white-haired, slender, Scottish gentlewoman. You would have thought she had never done anything but pour tea as the most difficult task in all her life. And yet she had been the person who rescued countless girls from slavery in the old Barbary Coast in Chinatown. Chinese girls who were 12 and 13 were being brought over by the shipload. Uh, they were told in some instances that they were being brought to marry some of the Chinese miners up in the mountains. In other instances, they were purchased from starving parents. When the girls arrived, they were sold off to houses of prostitution to be worked to death in just a few years. Usually by the time they were 18, they were finished. They were diseased and looked terrible. They were given a bowl of rice and then starved to death in a cupboard and then dumped into the bay. Well, in 1895, uh, this Scottish girl, Donaldina Cameron, arrived in San Francisco to begin work there. She was to work under another woman, uh, Miss Margaret Culbertson, who died before the year was over, so Donaldina Cameron was on her own. She came from the clan Cameron in Scotland. She told me about her grandfather. She had been named after Donald Cameron, a big man among the Camerons. They were a very fine family. One of her cousins was in the British diplomatic service and was knighted. Her grandfather was an old Scottish Calvinist who took his faith very seriously. His uh, pastor wanted him to become an elder, but he felt very strongly about the requirement that a good elder is one who rules his house well and whose faith is manifest in the lives of his children. Old Donald Cameron waited until he could see it in the lives of his grandchildren. And then all the Camerons turned out for that proud day when the old man with trembling hands served communion for the first time. And Donaldina Cameron came to the Barbary Coast to work in China. Her task was rescuing these girls in these houses of prostitution, Chinese girls. It was amazing how she did it. She had a Scottish canniness. These 
houses were the property of the tongs, and behind the tongs were corrupt San Franciscans making money out of the whole enterprise. Anyone who interfered was dealt with by the tong hatchet men, and they were literally hatchet men. They had small, sharp hatchets with which noiselessly they eliminated a man in a matter of seconds. But Donaldina Cameron, before she would move, had an excellent intelligence network, so she was usually in and out of a place with the girls before they knew what had happened. She was marked for death, but was never killed. After a while, another Celt came to her side, a big Irishman. Jack Mannion was his name, Inspector Jack Mannion of the San Francisco Police. Every attempt was made to get rid of Jack Mannion for helping Donaldina Cameron in the work that she did. But somehow or other he escaped all those attempts to purge him. It was... Uh, Remarkable, two Celts, one a very dedicated and devout Roman Catholic, the other a dedicated Scottish Calvinistic Presbyterian, working together with a great deal of relish. Once you had been with Jack Mannion five minutes, you would be sure to love the Irish for life because he was the epitome of the Irish cop. Fearless, totally honest, a man of faith, a man who did what he did with a great deal of zest. And he considered it the privilege of his life that he had Miss Cameron to help. In Chinatown, I worked for the Donaldina Cameron House, working among teenage Chinese boys. And in the course of my work, I met a great many of those who were rescued by Dondina Cameron. One of them I remember with delight, May Wong. May was the only one who remained single all her life. <clears throat> and she was a member of the staff there at Cameron House. And May and I got along beautifully because one of the things that distressed Mei Wong was what the church was becoming. Now, Mei didn't know much about theology, 
I'm not sure she would have known what the word meant. But she believed every word of the Bible. And she felt that you either stood firmly in terms of the Bible or the world would run over you. But if you were unequivocally someone who stood in terms of the whole word of God, you had a power not your own. And she had seen that in Donald Dina Cameron. And she saw all around her people who were becoming diplomatic and compromising. And uh, she liked me because I wasn't. <laughs> so I always felt a great deal of affection for Mei Wong because like her, I was totally against compromise. If you can find, and it's not the best book in the world, but at least it's the only one available. Carol Green Wilson's book, Chinatown Quest, The Life Adventures of Donaldina Cameron, published by the Stanford University Press in 1931 and 32, and I believe later in the 30s there was still another edition. You will find it worthwhile. Well, Otto, That's very interesting. Well, when I was 14, Mr. Franklin Delano Roosevelt came to campaign for the presidency to Newburgh, New York, which was right across the river from Hyde Park and the home of his mother. The Delano family lived there. And they put up a platform in the middle of a field and they had camp chairs lined up and there were no ropes or guards or anything. I don't believe there's any police because the country was serene at that yes. point. Even though it was a depression. Yes, it was a depression. It was 32. But at any rate, I uh, went over to the platform and it was just about on a level with my eyes. And I could see the men sitting in chairs in the back. Mr. Roosevelt in the middle, I didn't know who he was until the introduction was made at the dais. And then a man on either side of him grabbed him by the forearms and he stiffened himself. And they lifted him straight up and they carried him very swiftly to the dais. And I could see his feet, his toes being dragged. And then, of course, he, he got there at the dais, he steadied himself, and from the shoulders and so forth, he was a big man. And I never forgot that impression of a cripple. Very few people in the country ever seemed to realize that, they, that the president was a man in a wheelchair who could not walk. And it was one of those indelible memories because at that point, it seemed to me a tremendous effort of will to maintain cheerfulness and to go so far in that state of disability. Later on, when I was working for United Features Syndicate in New York, Mr. Roosevelt cheated United Press of $100,000. 
And of course, the impression that came to me then was an entirely different one because I received the news through, it was relayed. It was almost like a billiard shot where you get, it, it's banked from the left toward you. George Carlin, Mr. Carlin, the general manager of United Feature Syndicate, spent two weekends in the White House. He sent us all little notes on White House stationery because it was Valhalla in those days. And he signed Mr. Roosevelt up to an exclusive contract for the public papers and addresses of FDR. Judge Samuel Rosenman of the United States of the uh, New York Courts was the editor of record. Mike Mulligan was the actual editor, and I was the assistant to Mr. Mulligan. And about a week or two before we were absolutely ready to release this and syndicate it through all the Scripps Howard's papers, the very same manuscript, edited and all, had apparently been handed over by Justice Rosamann at the President's instructions to Benar McFadden, the owner and publisher of Liberty Magazine. So Liberty Magazine beat us to the punch, and we learned later that Liberty had given the President the same $100 for an exclusive contract. 100000 100000 yes. So the on top of the image of a heroic cripple, I received an, another image, you might say, of a man whose word was not good. And that was a very heavy piece of information for all of us at the time. I believe I'm the last person even remotely involved who's still alive. The story has never been in print. But it brought to mind then and now the mixed nature of individuals, especially an individual whose life goal is power and position and who will do anything to maintain either a standard of living or a position, knowing full well that Roy Howard at the United Press could not afford to sue him because I feel very few Americans today, you do, and of course our generation does, very few Americans today will appreciate the dictatorial power that the personality and presence of Mr. Roosevelt achieved over this country. Yes. He was, in every sense of the word, the most complete master of the American people that we have ever had in our history. Mr. Lincoln never had it. No. George Washington was reviled. Mm -hmm. We've had some very interesting men, some big men in the White House, but Mr. Roosevelt, who was not one of the biggest or one of the best, achieved the greatest personal control during his life. And I think any contact, you know, it reminds me of stories that used to appear every so often about elderly ladies who remembered seeing Mr. Lincoln. Mm. And we've reached that stage, <laughs> where the fact that we have seen some of these people yes. is uh, of great interest to those who only read about these yes. periods. Well, I can remember Henry Ford, Harvey Firestone, so can I. Thomas Salva Edison, mm -hmm and a great many others. Well, a very remarkable man 
whom I often remember with very great fondness, was one of the Indians on the reservation where I was a missionary for eight and a half years. Uh, the elders were all very remarkable men, three men, Tom Primo, Louis Dave, and Guy Manning. Guy Manning looked, uh, well, he was about your height and build, blue-eyed, gray, white hair, really. And, uh, Indian? He was more than a half Indian, but he had English and Chinese blood as well. Mm. He was a quiet, uh, good-humored man uh, with a kindly sense of humor, but a real force. Again and again, he was chairman of the tribal council. Whenever things got too bad, they voted in Guy Manning to clean up the reservation and restore law and order. But they would get weary of law and order because it wasn't too congenial to the average Indian and then vote him out. And when things got down on all fours again, why, Guy Manning was the one they sent for. The war had begun when I went there. And Guy's sons were in the army. One of them became a highly decorated Marine. And here he was, an old man. And uh, it was his daughter who was helping him with the ranch work. His wife and daughter would have to help him onto a horse so he could ride during the roundup. He was too crippled with arthritis uh, to be able to get on by himself. When he was irrigating the hay fields, his granddaughter would go out there because if he stumbled and fell, he couldn't get up on his own. And she would run and get help so that he could get back on his feet. One summer day after church, he and his family went on a picnic to Lamb's Reservoir. And after eating, he stretched out on a blanket with his hat over his eyes uh, to nap while the others fished. And he heard his granddaughter scream, Grandpa, Grandpa, there's a rattlesnake on you. And he stretched on his back, looked under the brim of his hat, and there was this huge rattlesnake crawling right over him. And uh, part of it on one side, part on the other. And uh, Guy told me, he said, before I knew where I was, I had jumped from a lying position to a spot ten feet away. And he said, that snake turned and struck at me and hit my coat and halfway clung to me and fell off as I was flying <laughs> across that 
distance. He said, I never jumped that far as a boy. And he said, as I stood there shaking, I thought, if I can jump like this when a rattlesnake scares me, there's no reason why I can't function again. And by sheer willpower, he overcame his condition and was soon getting up on horseback and functioning. Interesting. Very, very effectively. Once he was absent two Sundays in a row, and I could understand why, with all the sons gone, he had their spreads, his wife's spread, and his own to look after, and his daughter's as well. So I uh, went out and, because I thought he might be sick, and he said no. And he said, I was working. He said, now, the Lord says if your calf falls into a pit on the Sabbath, it's legitimate to pull him out. But he said, I guess if you let your calf fall into the pit two Sundays in a row, then the Lord is going to say, what's wrong with you and your management? So he said, I'll be there next Sunday. And he was every Sunday after that. He was a very judicious man, calm, good-humored, and before he spoke, he had the picture well in mind. At one point, he was in the headlines from coast to coast because he dug up evidence uh, of a an Indian agent's misappropriation of funds. And uh, this was when the war was over, and his son carried it for him to the Elko newspaper, and it was picked up by the wire services from coast to coast, and there were reporters up there. And the Indian service was furious with him because, of course, they had to do something about it. They stalled for some time so it would not look as though it had been Guy Manning's work. The idea of an Indian correcting the Indian service was repellent to them. That did not bother Guy in the slightest. His mission was accomplished. He was a man who relished preaching. The last time I was at the reservation, two or three years after I left, he was in a hospital up in Idaho, and he sent word, and he said, tell Rush that I would have liked nothing better than to hear him preach once more before I die. But I cannot make it, but I have the memories of so many sermons. He was a remarkable man. His sons, who were good friends of mine and my age, some of them, 
were very fine men. He was one of the most memorable men I have ever met. Guy Manning, a Shoshone. Well, as you know, I went north, I went east some years back to talk to Hamilton Fish. Yes. And Mr. Fish was in his 90s, if I remember correctly, early 90s. And he had an apartment just off Park, well, really on Park. The entrance was around the corner from Park. And the he opened the door, he was wearing bedroom slippers, but he was otherwise in a business suit. Had a terrible little dog that was yapping all around the place. Took me into his study, where he had everything in the world in that study. I'm, I'm sure if I live long into my 90s, my study will look like that too. It's already pretty messy. Well, we're not well, far from the 90s. <laughs> uh, don't give away any church secrets. <laughs> the, uh, and he was a bit hard of hearing, but he was very lucid, and he began to talk, and I think to a very great extent, his life was shadowed by Franklin Roosevelt's. And Hamilton Fish and Roosevelt were, Roosevelt was a few years older, I think six years older, but they both went to Harvard. They knew one another socially. When Roosevelt left the New York State Assembly to become Assistant Secretary of the Navy, uh, his, Hamilton Fish took his place. And Hamilton Fish spent his summers at their family home in Oyster Bay, right next to the Theodore Roosevelt part of the Roosevelt family. He was very much uh, admirer of Theodore Roosevelt and apparently had lots of conversations with him and of course was very close to Kermit and the Roosevelt boys. He also knew the Taft family and he was very close to them. And he had the excellent manners that Roosevelt had that Paul Blazier had, for that matter. That particular generation, which grew up, which was born at, toward the close of the 19th century, and which matured before World War I, had excellent manners. They were very democratic. They knew and remembered everybody's name. They were terribly polite. And they made no effort in that area. It came naturally to them. And uh, it's something that's gone out of American life. Mm -hmm. I, I have some very good friends across the country, and some of them in very good positions. But I must say that, by and large, they don't know what manners are. They're not, uh, they don't fail deliberately. They simply do not know. And uh, they'll, they'll let letters go unanswered, telephone calls go unreturned, things of that sort. They get busy. But Mr. Fish spoke not only about Mr. Roosevelt, but he spoke about the United States. He spoke about the meaning, the true meaning of the Monroe Doctrine, which most Americans don't seem any longer to recall. 
It was not to acquire Amer North American hegemony over Latin America that the Monroe Doctrine was announced by President Monroe. It was to keep Europe out of the Western Hemisphere and to say that we will not permit any further European adventures in this part of the world. Well, of course, in world, it was very difficult to maintain that. In World War I, the Germans were very active in Mexico, and so were the British. And, in fact, in the Civil War, during our Civil War, we saw foreign uniforms when a combined Spanish and French army was in Mexico and tried to make Maximilian the emperor. Mr. Theodore Roosevelt had great problems with the Caribbean republics and great problems with Colombia, Grand Colombia, and the idea that we seized the Panama Canal or that we seized the Panama, Panama as a country from Colombia is a canard which was floated by later muckraders and so forth. Colombia wanted to keep North America out of the Caribbean and worked very diligently toward that area. And Theodore Roosevelt and his colleagues felt that Germany was going to move in. There was a civil war in Colombia, and Panama was a breakaway republic. It had nothing but jungle. It had no industry. It had no railroad. It had absolutely nothing. It was not a land that anybody wanted, and certainly not the United States. The United States later built at great expense of money and men a canal, which helped all international traffic in those days. But Mr. Hamilton Fish, whose great-great-grandfather had fought in the War of Independence alongside George Washington, who was on his staff, who was a very, very close friend of Alexander Hamilton's and whose grandfather was Secretary of State, Secretary of State, had been raised in this early American tradition, knew the, knew the history of this country, and went on to talk about it in the most fascinating way. He, he brought up the question of our foreign aid program. Isn't it strange, he said, that Congress, which investigates so many things, has never investigated the manner in which foreign aid has been handled? He said, do you suppose that there is some banker someplace whose nephew might be a broker in some of these immense loans? He said, wouldn't you suppose that when multi-billions and billions of dollars of American taxpayers' funds are concerned, that Congress would recall itself to its duty? He said during World War II we had Senator Truman as an oversight committee to see that the public's money was not wasted in the war effort. But he said in this tremendous program which has been going on for years, nobody knows who gave what to whom. And he spoke all told, I guess, two or three hours. It was history came to life, not just his, but his forebears and his grandson, you know, is very, very left and liberal, and his son is much more so than his father. He, uh, he spoke of them in very kindly terms, but it was obvious that he was greatly disappointed, that he felt that his family, well, let us say, declined. That's a very hard realization 
to come to. And he left an unforgettable memory. Well, there were four generations from Washington's day to Hamilton Fish and his time of distinguished men in that family. It was only a matter of weeks ago that he died, wasn't it? That's right. At 103. Yes. 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 Now, Will Durant had a phrase covering that, a different sort of a phrase. He put it, he put long, he allied long life to courage. Mm -hmm. And I think there's something to that. I mean, others might say faith, but courage, because life, what was it the old Episcopal prayer says, this veil of tears, deals a lot of blows. Well, speaking of life and longevity, with Hamilton Fish, of course, do you know uh, what particular group of men have the most remarkable record for longevity? No. The Pope's. Oh, really? Yes. The popes usually do not get named a pope until they are old. That's true. The church pays no attention to chronology. And as a result, when they have the responsibilities, it rejuvenates many of them. When we retire people at 65 or 70 at the latest, we're saying you're no longer useful. And that is not conducive to a long life. Well, this is the first culture, so far as I know. Well, not the first. I'll take it back. In a way, the treatment of the elderly in the United States reminds me of primitive societies. It reminds me of the Eskimo who put the elderly, used to put the elderly on an ice floe and the various and sundry primitive tribes who would stop feeding the elderly. We haven't gotten that far, but we're moving in that direction. And there is a complete lack of respect for the elderly in the American society today. There's a worship of youth, which is like worshiping folly. (laughs) (laughs) And a lack of respect for those who have managed to endure. Yes. Well, I can remember how powerful Hamilton Fish was in Congress. Roosevelt considered him his number one roadblock and would regularly denounce him. He was a very tall, handsome man. Yes, and he had a distinguished career uh, in World War One. Yes, he did. Uh, commanding black troops. Yeah. Uh, and yet they tried to make a racist out of him. Well, a racist is anybody who disagrees with a liberal. Yes. Authorized by the Calcedon Foundation. Archived by the Mount Olive Tape Library. Digitized by ChristRules.com.